0: Welcome to the Personal Finance First Podcast Show with me, Content Editor, Rowan Uesto. It is also our first Tax Talk episode, the monthly feature where we talk about everything tax, laws, and red tape. Our podcast will be available on all major platforms such as Google Podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and other popular platforms. Please keep in touch and keep an eye for upcoming shows on www.personalfinance.co.za. This podcast might be supported by advertising. My esteemed and inaugural guest today is Keith Engel, the former Chief Director of Legal Tax Design at National Treasury and the current CEO of the professional body called South African Institute of Tax or Site for short, formerly known as the South African Institute of Tax Practitioners. Welcome, Keith.
1: Thank you. It's, it's great to be here, Ruan. Much appreciated.
0: You've just come out of your latest Tax Indaba, where you covered everything from tax and fiscal policy to operational and enforcement trends and everything in between. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, as an introduction and as a start to a long and lasting relationship on this Tax Talks feature, perhaps you should just explain to our listeners exactly what SAIT is, site is and what they do and why it matters and perhaps give us a little insight into your rebranding recently as well.
1: Sure, fair enough. Okay, we've been around for a while. We've been around since 2007. Now, what we are is a professional body. Now, what does that mean? I mean, think of doctors. They have the medical association. Lawyers have the law society, accountants, chartered accountants, and a few others. We are basically a tax society representing the tax profession. So essentially, if you join us, it's really a brand to say that it's a mark of quality and that you can trust. So we have grown quite a bit um, since our humble beginnings. We've got about 8,500 members now. The bulk of our members are tax compliance people, people who fill out the returns, review returns, corporate individual trust returns. Then you have a, a small segment that are involved in tax litigation, and you've got another segment involved in tax advisory. So it's quite a big group, and they come from all different walks of life. We have international tax people. We have wealth advisory people. We've got people who just deal with individual returns or small business tax returns. So it's a very big group, and tax is sort of a huge set of subspecialties. So even though South Africa is small, we have a very sophisticated community. It's quite deep. So the purpose of the site itself is twofold. It is one, it's a regulatory body, so just to get your license. So you need to know your license and credentialed. And it's a question of quality and and credibility. So a member with site is a person who's serious about tax. We regulate our members so they're under a professional code of ethics. We discipline a couple members and they come from either the individuals or from SARS itself. But then we also provide an important function of helping our members. So we do a lot of educational training and updates. We've got over 70 free hours of webinars for our people a year. We have our magazines, Tax Talk, which I guess this is labeled off of, Tax Chronicles. We have a helpline in order to assist people on technical issues. We're providing more services every day. And then at another level, we are a policy institute where we are trying to facilitate engagement on tax policy issues and tax operational issues. So we keep a very close relationship with government and the private sector and the goal is to put them together. And that's really what the purpose of the Indaba is.
0: So now that we've got your street cred covered, let's go to the inside scoops of the tax Darbar, past and present, if we may. How many of these conferences do you have under your belt and what is the intention behind them? And what was the underlying theme of this year's event? Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, this has been around for a while now. I joined SITE in 2015, so what do I have? Now gee, time goes by quickly, seven years for me. And I, I know it began a few years prior So I think we might be at a 10-year mark for this thing or a little bit more. Myself, though, is about only seven. Now, the purpose of the tax and DABA is really to bring everybody together, both government and the private sector who are relevant in the tax community. And it's a sharing of ideas and a sharing of understanding. It's not a workshop. A workshop is where we're going to fight about we want one issue or we want another. Here, it's it's a catch-up to figure out what's going on and where everybody's really at. And one of the things that's very important in understanding is you're just trying to find out what is really going on, not what you assume, but what is really happening. And that's very important for our practitioners. Even if they can't change things, they need to be able to tell their clients what's the actual trends. And the government also wants to know what's going on. And usually the biggest problem that we have in debates is people are too busy arguing about solutions and not understanding the current facts. And really the indabas is more about Current factual understanding rather than pushing for solutions.
0: And the underlying theme of this year's event, was it very specific to current situations?
1: Well, we said the uneven path to recovery, which uh, maybe that was, and I think that was a reasonable assumption. And I think when we went into the opening discussion a little bit, what we really are seeing is we've come out of COVID. We've been we've come out of the Zuma years. So the question is: what's the path ahead? And it doesn't look easy, it doesn't look impossible, but it is a very tough struggle ahead. And the question is, what is the forces that are constraining us? And then what maneuvering room do we have? So part of the the conference begins with the narrow tunnel in which we exist. And then the next couple of days is filling out what what the operating paradigm within that tunnel.
0: Keith, in your opening speech in one of the first panels you hosted yourself on day one, you discussed the significant progress the South African Revenue Service has made in its revenue collection efforts by means of improved technology or tax morality, morality. but the big elephant in the room remains firmly seated on its chair. The country's tax base is shrinking, so the question is how do we keep revenue rising without undermining the economy required to sustain such revenue?
1: Yes, no, I think that is the big issue and that's, I think was brought pretty forthrightly forward. I think my point was is that we always look to the treasury and SARS for all the answers to save the country. But bottom line is tax is about um, really expenditure drives tax, not the other way around. So the big elephant in the room really is overall government policy. And again, we've all been sort of saying this over and over again, but we have to be explicit about it now. I mean, the policy direction we have is not wonderful. I mean, I think we were definitely going in the wrong, wrong direction under the Zuma years. Under the Cyril years, we're trying to move more in the right direction, but it doesn't seem like we're willing to go very far. And the problem really is is this, if you look at the overall tax base, and they went through the calculations very well, and which is a little different than what we thought, is that the problem is, is our tax base is flat or declining slightly. Meanwhile, our population is growing. So in 2000, we had 45 million. Now we have 60 million people. Yet the tax base roughly remains about 15 million and the tax base is slightly weaker than it was before. When they talk about recovery, you're coming off of COVID. So we were coming out of anemic years of growth, which began in 2010. And our our growth trajectory is one to 2%, yet our population growth is much higher. And we're really struggling for this one to 2%. So what's happening is the growth is simply not there. And yet when you're looking at government expenditure projections and what they wanna do, they wanna spend more than the country is growing. And so what you have to keep doing is finding more and more pockets. And unfortunately for your average middle-class person, those pockets are dry. And yet you still see these calls like a wealth tax, a big, a, you know more of this and more of that like NHI, and you're like, well, this is simply unsustainable. It might be the greatest ideas in the world, but you can't keep taking from what's left. And so when you're looking at the tax base that's there, you'll see that overall, because of inflation and other factors, the middle and the lower middle has definitely gotten poorer. A lot of people are treading water. There's been a small group that's gotten a little richer. But even that small group is a very sensitive tax base. And what you're seeing on a different discussion is the amount of immigration. Now, I don't think immigration is caused by tax, but that immigration is still critical because that's your, your base that holds extra money. And unfortunately, due to other factors, people are leaving. So in this paradigm, you're asking the revenue service to find more revenue when you're really not generating a bigger pie, and that that's just not sustainable.
0: In another panel discussion you were inv- involved on, it was around identifying the nature of illicit trade in syntaxes taxes and the effect on compliant taxpayers. It's been in the news recently where a certain banking institute was caught red-handed in facilitating the illicit trade of cigarettes, but alcohol and other contraband has long been a problem for SARS. And they often report its confiscation of anything between abalone to pangolin. And if COVID-19 bans on tobacco and alcohol taught us anything, rules can only go so far, if not that far, at all. So my question is, who are the main actors driving these schemes and scams and the basic contours in which these schemes arise? And what is the indirect impact of illicit trade on the formal business sectors and the public purse? And is this battle that authorities are ever going to get top on the top of?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you always have to worry about evasion. So and I think this is where the revenue service is moving in the right direction. In, in the years past, the revenue service has really been focusing on the compliant and or the semi-compliant. And one of the problems when you're a government official and you're looking at revenue service people is when you're you – know, people like Gordon and the others were honest people. Honest people can only really see honesty. So they didn't focus enough on people wholly outside the system. Now, cigarettes is a good example of the problem of evasion. Now, the the excise tax on cigarettes, reason why is people view the excise tax on cigarettes as free money, that it's easy to enforce. All you have to do is enact the law and everything's gonna be wonderful. Well, ultimately, even the simplest laws need to be enforced. And where you're seeing the revenue service push is on actual enforcement. Now, when you're looking at the cigarette ban, when you look at cigarettes, The reason why people like taxing it so much, forgetting about the behavior issues, is that it's inelastic, like oil and gas. When you look at alcohol and you look at cigarettes, people must, they will always buy these things. And so the argument is we can raise the tax as much as we want, and no matter what happens, we'll get the money. Well, at some point, they're going to keep smoking, but they're just going to do it illegally. And the COVID-19 created a disaster because everybody learned how to do it illegally. And so what you see is there are a number of the bigger companies and that the problem is for the bigger companies is they can't play those same games. And if you're going to play the game of illegal cigarettes, what you're trying to do is make the price cheaper so you can sell it more. So the difference between an illegal cigarette and a legal cigarette is the price. Now, if you look, the average tax is about 22.7 cents a pack. So if you can buy a pack for 10 Rand, you know that you bought it less than the tax that's due and it's an illegal cigarette. So what's happening here and what it appears to be is there are a number of companies that are mid-size. They're not subject to governance because they're not on the, on the exchanges. So they don't care about governance. They just care about profit and they are taken the chance. They're saying, look, you're not gonna catch me. And so they're buying the leaves either locally or through Zimbabwe. They manufacture them there, and at the manufacturing site, they're supposed to pay a tax. But what they do is they play a game with the meters or the reporting, and they simply give the SARS the story that they're not really generating that much cigarette sales. And so unfortunately, for many years, the revenue service was just buying the books and just doing a tick box exercise in enforcement. And that was getting bigger and bigger. And now what's happened is with the illegal cigarettes after COVID, now what's happening is all these guys are selling most of these cigarettes to a lot of the informal traders and even to some of the bigger traders and at a, at a deep discount, and therefore it's not being caught. So now recently you see a company that's been mentioned in the news that SARS is cracking down on it. So they are picking up on these things, but it requires physical enforcement. And the point that that's there is that, an auditor, which is the traditional revenue service person, is a person who receives a return, analyzes the return, finds, tries to find a gap, and then they go and they, they'll challenge it. But they don't go out on the street. They're not forensic auditors. So they accept the books that are given them. So the challenge for the revenue service is they need a different set of skill the forensic order detective skills. And so you see they're beginning to do that. They're putting a lot more in third party data and other sources. And there I have to really commend the revenue service because this effort really going after evasion really only has begun in the last couple of years. Um, But the people there, you know, they're simply manufacturers and then people wanting to make a deal. It's as simple as that. There's nothing special. They're not necessarily gangsters. One
0: of my favorite topics, of course, is what the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition mm-hmm. fondly refers to as localization. Mm-hmm. South Africa is in negotiations to finalize the African Free Trade Agreement. We belong to a customs union with neighboring countries like Botswana and Namibia. The DTIC is pushing for local production in any way imaginable. And there's a master plan for almost everything, including cannabis, chicken, and scrap metals. But how far will these efforts go in actually contributing to the economy, expanding the tax base, and realizing transformation
1: targets? Yes, no, I think this is a critical issue. And let's just break down the problem that we're having. One, we have um, a large part of the population that's simply too poor, and they want redistribution. Now, redistribution is important to prevent the revolution, but as Milton Friedman said, the more you redistribute, the pie is too small. The second is you have the corrupt, and the corrupt, you know, are playing the game of Robin Hood. They will take from the rich and give to the poor, but what you find is they take from the rich and they give to themselves. The third problem in this government is that you have a government committed to very rigid big government policy. And what you're seeing is they want to regulate their way to growth. That's really what they want to do. They figure if they regulate, they will grow the pie, that the private sector is something that they can magically com- and micro- control the micromanagement and then grow it. The problem with localization is that, yes, you, know, you kind of want to prefer your own suppliers locally. But the difficulty is, again, you see this major effort to regulate. And so hopefully if you exclude all the foreigners well then theoretically there'll be growth the problem first in localization is you're rising the price of everything so you have to pick and choose really localization is just another form of of customs protection it's really just a it's a a non-fiscal protection of the local base so it violates the african free trade agreement at least in substance And what free traders around the world say, indirect methods like localization really are against free trade. Now, the thing about free trade is the best way to protect free trade is on consumer goods because that just raises the price of consumers, which isn't great, but okay. The problem is is that heat that's being pushed for this localization is that the prices of everything is going to go up, including intermediate business goods. So, if you are a local business in South Africa, maybe you're favored, but you can only buy local South African goods, and that's going to drive up the cost of all your goods. So, what will happen then is maybe you're going to have an advantage locally, but as an exporter, you're going to have a major problem because you're going to be faced, you're going to have higher prices because you're going to require on local goods as opposed to foreign. So The problem is a lot of these practices have shown never to work, like the scrap export levy, like the diamond export levy. All of these things, they sound good. If I just beat up a section of the private sector, I'm going to get what I want. And they tend to have perverse consequences, and they just slow down growth. And even worse, now a local company has to know whether they're buying from a a local content company. So all companies have to keep track of their local and foreign content, and you're just driving up compliance costs. Already, too, when you have a complicated tax system, or we have a BE system, or a labor system, you're constantly driving up costs and making things uncompetitive, which makes things more expensive, and it means you're not going to grow. And unfortunately, and ideologically, the group in power, to the extent they are of noble mind are committed to this cause. And again, you're just squeezing more out of the economy. And so government, instead of pushing to regulate, they really need to shift their resources to put money into infrastructure and things that are gonna generate growth. So that's why the picture going forward doesn't look good.
0: Well, these politically driven ideologies does prove that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> Keith, you and I can talk all day about that. And there's still so many angles and avenues to unpack and unru- unravel around tax policies and trade initiatives, which we will do in upcoming episodes and also involve many of your state members in these discussions. But as a closing remark or final thoughts on the Indaba and the podcast, it's a point you continuously make throughout your opening speech and various panels discussions and that is that south africa doesn't have a tax problem we have a spending problem can you please just explain to our listeners what does that mean and where do we go from here
1: yes no i think as i said there are two cultures in there i'm in the tax world and i grew up with great tax professors and so forth and when they, when they as academics talk, they look at the world and the world starts with tax and all answers are with tax. And you'll see this well in this country. So again, we want to promote uh, the economy by having this universal income grant. So we'll shift money from the rich to poor and we'll solve inequality. Then we look at you know, the revenue service and treasury to save us economically. Every year we look at the budget, the minister will save us. And the tax, if we just lower the tax rate, things will change. The bottom line is, is taxes have very little effect on the economy. It's a small amount. It can be an annoyance or a burden or a slight help. But the country's growth depends on expenditure. Expenditure drives tax. You need to get your money. Then you need, how, what do you need? The question is, how much money does the government need? And the way, how do you get it? Well, you get it through taxes or you get it through borrowing? And the taxes and the borrowing is a reflection on spending. Spending in the proper place and in the right way is what makes the economy grow. Hence, if the money was spent properly in ESCOM, we would have electricity. We're talking now about transnet. All of those things in infrastructure make growth. All of those things is where things are going to be. So, unfortunately, we spend too much time focusing on the minister on how he's going to get money. And not enough on the rest of government where we're going to really make the difference. And that, I don't know where to solve that from a tax institute. And that's why I have to turn to things like B4SA and BUSA and others, where we need to have a much larger and more active engagement with government to get us back on track.
0: As always, it was a pleasure speaking to you, Keith, and we hope to continue these conversations next month with Sight and the next episode of Tax Talk. If your members and our listeners have any questions or remarks on what was discussed today or what they want to hear in future, please email the personal finance team at personalfinance at Until next time, this is Ron Uyster for Tax Talk and the Personal Finance Podcast.